our first reading from Exodus. I'll invite uh, Selena to read that for us. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the, world, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And, the, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written up for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, Jesus uh, told us that he is the good shepherd. He's the true shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And he told his disciples that he had uh, sheep of another fold to whom he must go and and call them by name and that they would recognize his voice and that they would become his sheep. And Father, we we trust that we are those sheep. We are we are part of those sheep, those those sheep whom Jesus has sought. Um, and we ask that we might right now hear the voice of our shepherd. Will you tune our hearing? so to speak, so that we may see him and see his face and in seeing him see you and be renewed in that uh, closeness, that bond, that covenant, uh, which is your desire for us. And so will you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? And will you take away everything that might distract us and every obstacle that might uh, stand between us and knowing you well, truly more fully do this miraculous work in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Everybody, um, hello. Uh, please turn back to the uh, Exodus reading. We're continuing our series in Exodus. Now, um, one of the fun things about being a preacher is that preachers regularly get to say big audacious things that sound crazy, but that are really, really deeply true. Um, I kind of imagine if I was ever a scientist, which I'm never going to be, but if I was ever a scientist, in my imagination, I want to be a physicist. And one of the things I like about physicists is it seems to me that they get to say big, audacious, crazy things about like time and space and quantum things. I don't even know what that means. But, but apparently it's all true. And the, uh, the truth of the thing that they're talking about makes the audacity of the theories beautiful and delightful and compelling. And preachers get to do that same kind of thing a, a little bit, may, maybe a lot. And today, looking at this reading from Exodus, I get to big, make big audacious claims uh, that if we grasp onto it and if we see the deep truth of it, uh, it'll weigh down our souls with a privilege and a purpose and a delight that will see you through the pain of this life and will see you right on through eternity in the life to come. See, I'm already saying big audacious things. Um, let me just kind of back into the theme differently. Some of us, a lot of us here grew up in church. Like you are, you are, you know, grew up in church land. And if you grew up in church land, my guess is that you've heard about salvation from the time you were really little, right? Um, the idea of uh, being saved, have you been saved, when were you saved, that kind of thing. Now, tell me if I'm right, except you can't tell me, but just see if I'm right. Most of the time, when we talk about salvation, we're typically talking about what it is we have been saved from. So things like sin and death and hell and stuff like that, we've been saved from those things. But my question to you is this, how clear are you, how clear are we about what we are saved for. Now, our Exodus reading gives a, a big audacious claim that answers that question. What is it that we are saved for? Or those of you that didn't grow up in church land, or maybe don't identify as Christians, let me ask you this question. What do you understand the purpose of your life to be? Um, why are you alive, right? Um, and I can imagine asking somebody that question and them kind of looking back at me like, oh, dear, you know, I don't, how am I supposed to answer that question? I don't know. I can imagine somebody saying, gosh, uh, let's see, biologically, I guess I'm here to pass on my genes. Um, socially, I, maybe I'm here to you know, promote justice or something like that. Or, or professionally, I'm here to pursue success. Or relationally, I'm here to find love. Or personally, I'm, I'm just trying to find myself. I'm here for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of purposes. And if that's what comes up for you, I respond with this. Totally makes sense. But what if underneath all of those purposes, there was a deeper purpose that maybe you haven't considered. And that deeper purpose is the one thing that animates everything else, that, that makes sense of all the other aspects of your life and animates your life with meaning. Now, this reading from Exodus gives us an insight into that deeper meaning that animates everything else. And here's the big audacious thing I want to claim and show you from this text. And it may not sound audacious to begin with, but it is. God's big driving purpose for your life is that God wants you to see him and feast with him and know him intimately forever. And Christian, what is it that you are saved for? It's that. You were saved so that you could see God. 
not from a distance, but up close, so that you could feast with God, not from a distance, but up close, so that you could know God, not from a distance, but up close and know him forever. Now, somebody might hear that and say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure that that's very compelling. Uh, The idea of seeing God is not particularly compelling to me, so blah. But if that's you, fantastic, because the reading from Exodus is for you. So come with me into the reading, and I want to show you God's purpose for our lives. And secondly, what is the pathway that he takes us on to get there? First of all, what is the purpose for our lives? Now, this is this story from Exodus, from Exodus chapter 24. It's one of those uh, stories from the Bible that's really, really important and desperately underplayed. Um, Why is it important? Well, this story is important, crucial, a turning point in the whole of the Bible. If you don't understand this, this reading, there's a way in which the rest of the Bible doesn't entirely make sense. This story is important because this is where God and Israel get married. Sort of. They don't actually get married, but they enter into a ceremony that binds them together in a covenant. Now, do you remember from last week we talked about covenants? A covenant is a committed relationship that's more binding than a friendship and more intimate than a contract. And here, God and Israel are entering a covenant. It's a ceremony of entering and initiating a covenant so that from this moment onward, from this chapter onward, God and Israel are bound together in a committed relationship. It's a little bit like a wedding. It's a little bit like an adoption ceremony. From this time onward, God and Israel, their family. And the climactic moment in this kind of wedding ceremony is verse 10. Because in verse 10, Moses and the elders of Israel, they go up on Mount Sinai and they see God. They see God and they feast with God. Now slow down and you need to see how shocking this is. Because verse 10 just kind of says, hey, check it out. They saw God and it moves on. But when you're reading this, if you know anything about the rest of the book of Exodus and anything about the story of the Bible, the idea of seeing God is shocking. In fact, a little bit later in the book of Exodus, we're going to find out, Exodus 33 says, no one can see God and survive the sight. It's shocking that they're able to see God. We don't know how much of God that they see. They don't, the text doesn't describe God at all. But it's not only shocking, it's also a climactic moment because it's an image, this idea of seeing God and feasting with God. It's an image of the intimacy that God desires for his people. It's the goal of the covenant. Now, it's shocking to see God and feast with him. It's climactic to see God and feast with God. But it is also, and this is important, it is also surprising within the context of the narrative. Why do I say that? Well, before this point, in the book of Exodus, there's not a lot of reason to think that Israel particularly wanted to see God. They're not like angling to see God as the story has progressed up until this moment. So go back to the beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter one, the curtain opens up and Israel, do you remember this? Israel is enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt. And Israel has had whispers of a God of Abraham way back deep in their past, but they don't know much about the God of Abraham. And at that point, if you were to ask Israel, hey, Israel, what is it, like, if, let's imagine that there's a God in heaven, Israel, what is it that you want God to do for you? Or, or if you asked Israel at that point when they're enslaved, what is it, Israel, that you want most? What's your goal for your life? What's your purpose? Well, 
I don't expect anybody would have said, and the text gives us no reason to think that anybody would have said, oh, you know what we really want most is to see God and feast with God and know God forever. That's not what they wanted. Their desires were far more immediate and urgent. They wanted to be set free from slavery. They wanted freedom and liberation, and they wanted escape from Egypt. And they weren't wrong. They were totally right about that desire. And when God introduces himself to Israel, God introduces himself by giving them what they wanted. He liberates them. He frees them. He lets them, or he opens up the way of escape from Egypt. But then later on, when they get in, out of Egypt and they get into the desert, do you remember what it is that they want? They still don't particularly want to see God. That's not the urgent need. What they want, do you remember, is food. It's always more immediate. They want water. And of course, they're not wrong to want those things. They're right to want those things. And God wanted those things for them too. And so God continues to introduce himself to Israel by giving them the things that they need, food and water. But I want you to see that at this point, they're not angling to see God or have an up-close personal relationship with God or to feast with God. In fact, at other times, their desires are running in absolutely the wrong direction. You can find times more than once where Israel actually wants to give up on the God who rescued them, and they want to go back to Egypt and go back into slavery because they think that that's going to be better for them in the short term. And in those situations, God says no to their desires because he loves them. Now, here's the thing. Israel's desires move in many different directions of the course of the story. Sometimes they're good desires, sometimes they're not good desires, but all along, God had a desire. Unbeknownst to Israel, God had a desire for Israel. God had a purpose and God had a goal. And God's goal for Israel was bigger than Israel's desires for themselves. God had a goal for Israel that included liberation, but it was bigger than liberation. It included food and water and everything they needed, but it was bigger than food and water and everything they needed. God's goal for Israel was that God wanted to give Israel himself. God liberated Israel for the purpose so that God could give himself to Israel later on. God cared for Israel and fed them every single day so that God could give himself to Israel in a covenant of intimacy and union and joy. Uh, God said no to some of Israel's desires, like running back to Egypt, because God wanted to give himself to Israel. And Israel was not expecting that. Israel wasn't particularly desiring that, but that had always been God's desire, God's purpose, and God's end game for the whole relationship. Maybe think of it this way. The gods of Egypt <clears throat> treated the Egyptians like they were slaves. And that's the normal way that pagan religion, the, um, the pagan gods typically treat their subjects, so to speak. But on this day at Mount Sinai in verse 10, God demonstrated to Moses and the elders of Israel that he was a different kind of God. When the elders of Israel and Moses sat down at the table of the Lord, they sat down not as slaves, but as guests of the God who liberated them. 
And it was as if God was saying, Israel, I am not like the other gods of the nations, nor any of your expectations. None of your expectations match who I am. It's as if God was saying to Israel, Israel, I do not want you as my slaves. I want you as my sons and daughters. I want you to be able to sit down with me at a table and know me, not from a distance, but up close, to see me face to face. It's as if God was saying, I want you to be able to come up right up to my face so that I can pour out my love upon you, so that I can fill you with my love to such an extent that my love in you bounces back towards me, and then it begins to overflow towards other people. It's as if God was saying to Israel, Israel, in this new covenant, I will give you many gifts. I will take care of all of your needs. But all of those gifts that I will give you are merely appetizers for the bigger feast. And the bigger feast and the best gift is always me, says God to Israel. God said, Israel, I want you to see me and feast with me forever. And that's why we're entering this covenant. That has always been my purpose for you. Now, if you look back in the wide range, uh, wide angle lens of scripture. You can see that this was God's purpose from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God and God's people, Adam and Eve, are right up next to each other and they're feasting together. And then everything goes wrong. And then with maybe one exception, this moment is the first time that God and God's people eat together in each other's presence since the Garden. And then if you go all the way to the very last page of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you know what you find? You find that at the very end, when everything is said and done, at the end of history, God and God's people will, will look at each other face to face, and they will feast together forever. It's an image of knowing God up close in intimacy and union. That is God's purpose from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And Exodus chapter 24 is a critical moment where the people of God begin to get a little taste of what that means. God's purpose for Israel was always bigger than Israel's desires. And Emmanuel, that's important for us to learn. Um, just for a minute, consider yourself. Consider your strongest desires. What are they? What is it that you really, really want out of life? What is it that if you got that thing, then man, your life is happy, right? Everything's great. Let me say this. Whatever those desires are, they're too little. Because God wants something for you that is bigger than your capacity to desire it. God wants to give you himself. One of the things that that means is this is why that we, we must never define ourselves fundamentally by our desires. Some of our desires are good. Some of our desires aren't good. We must not define ourselves fundamentally by those desires. Because if I define myself simply by those desires, then it's as if I will shrink to fit those desires. I'll become stunted by my own appetites. But on the other hand, if you can see what, is it, what it is that God desires for you, if you can see that you are made to see God and feast with God and know him forever in an intimate covenant of love, then even though that is beyond your capacity to desire it or even imagine it, what will happen is God will reach down into your being. He'll find that part of your soul with, that is full of desires and he will begin to stretch your soul and expand your imagination and grow your desires to fit him. 
and you will be compelled and you will be delighted and satisfied with God alone forever. This is God's purpose for you. And it's one of the things that means that even the difficulties and the pain and even the suffering and the disappointments of this life, just like God used Israel's uh, struggles, obstacles, uh, arduous seasons, disappointments, God used all of that to drive them to himself. So God will use all of those obstacles, difficulties in your life to drive you more fully to him so that you know him and can see him and feast with him forever in a bond of intimate love. That is God's purpose for you. Can you see that? Well, if that's God's purpose for us, that we would see him feast with him and live in an intimate relationship with him, then how does he get us there? Well, this passage gives us four uh, uh, kind of waypoints or four pathways into uh, knowing God, seeing him face to face. And they're all working together. Here's the first one. God's word summons us to himself. Look back at the reading. Do you notice that Moses is super busy? The poor guy has a lot to do in this reading. Um, And there's one thing that he does twice. So he reads the first draft of the Bible to the people of Israel. And he reads it twice, verse three and verse seven. Actually, the first time he's just verbally describing it. So he verbally tells Israel God's word, everything that God had been saying. Then Moses writes it down. And that's the first draft of the Bible. It includes almost certainly the 10 commandments and probably some of the material around the 10 commandments. Um, And then he reads that first draft of the Bible to the people. They hear it for the second time. Now, why all this Bible reading? Why is God's word such a big factor in this covenant? Well, if you go back and you look at the Ten Commandments, and we looked at this last week, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that it's always answering three questions. It's always answering the question, who is God? What has God done for his people? And what does it mean to be in a relationship with him? So if you read the Ten Commandments, it begins with not a rule. Do you remember this? The Ten Commandments do not begin with a rule. It begins with an announcement. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery. It begins with this announcement that reminds Israel who their God is and what God has done to rescue them. And then after that, it then has Ten Commandments that describe what it looks like to live in an ongoing relationship with this kind of a God. Now, this is important, Emmanuel, because it means that the Bible is more than just a set of rules. They're certainly not arbitrary rules. And the Bible is more than a set of stories that inspire us. And the Bible is more than just a historical record of one nation's religious experience. The Bible in its first draft and in its last draft is a summons to Israel. And it's a summons to us. It's a summons to us to come into a relationship with God where we see him, know him and feast with him forever. God's word is always calling us to himself. And therefore, Emmanuel, whenever you read the Bible, and oh, I hope you read the Bible. You can ask this question, how is this reading summoning me to intimacy with God? Or to use the words of the uh, gospel reading, how is this reading the shepherd's voice calling me to himself? The word of God summons us into this covenant relationship with God. Secondly, faith 
then surrenders to God. Go back to the reading. Moses reads the first draft of the Bible twice, and then each time Israel responds by, yes. Verse three, verse seven, all the words that the Lord our God has spoken to us, we will do. Now, Israel is giving their full consent to God's word. Remember, Moses has just been reading to them about who God is, what God has done for them, and what it then means to live in a relationship with him. And when they hear all of that, their response quite naturally is to trust God. They trust him because he rescued them. And in rescuing them, he earned their trust. And because they trust him, it makes sense for them to say, yes, I will trust that your commandments for us are going to continue to lead us in the life of liberty. Now, I point this out because this is faith, Emmanuel. Faith is a trust in God based upon who God is and what God has done that results in a full surrender to obey him comprehensively in every area of life. Do you have that kind of faith? Belief in God, well, a lot of people believe that God exists right? Uh, But that's not the same thing as biblical faith. Biblical faith is more. There's another place in the Bible where it says even the devil believes that God exists. Right now, God's word is summoning you, calling you to a full surrender to God because of who he is and what he has done for you. Trust him because of who he is. Trust him because of what he has done. And that trust will lead you to an intimate relationship with God. That is God's purpose for you. Consent to that. So God's word summons us to himself. Faith responds with a total surrender to him. And then thirdly, sacrifice secures us to God. Go back to the reading. Do you notice all the blood? There's blood everywhere. Um, Moses builds an altar. An altar is like a stone table that represents God. And then Moses and presumably other people butcher a lot of animals. This is where the blood happens. And then he throws blood on the altar representing God. Then he reads the Bible again. And then he slightly grossly splatters blood all over the people. Why all the blood? Well, in our culture, we ratify agreements by signing paper, right? Uh, In this culture, however, they ratified covenants not by signature, but by sacrifice. And the blood signified at least two things, and then a third gets added. First of all, the blood signified union. So uh, Moses splattered God's altar with blood. God splattered the people with blood. And the idea is that they're now united by that blood. It's like their family. Now, Um, it's a little bit like a wedding ring. A wedding ring signifies that two people have become one. Um, The blood signified union that hadn't existed before. But secondly, the blood also, and this is a little scary, signified warning. Because at least part of the idea is that if either, part of the idea of the dead animal is that if either party breaks the covenant, then the agreed consequence was that the, the party that broke the covenant should die just like the animals had died when the covenant was made. So breaking the covenant means death. And that's a grim kind of warning. 
And it's even more grim when, if you remember the rest of the story of the Bible. In fact, within 40 days of establishing this covenant, Israel breaks it. And that brings us just a second to ourselves, because listen, let me ask you, have you ever broken covenant with God? Have you ever run away from God? Maybe you never thought of it in terms of a covenant, but have you ever uh, lived your life as if God was not part of the equation? Or let me ask you this, have you tried to have faith, but then you found that your faith is too weak to lead you to a full surrender? Can you identify with that? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, listen up because God has made provision for you and for me and for anyone who says yes, which should be all of us. Because here's the thing, sacrifice signifies union. It also signifies warning, but then thirdly, it signifies mercy. Because the God of Israel in the Old Testament added a third meaning to the idea of sacrifice. The God of Israel also filled sacrifice with mercy because God knew that his people couldn't keep the covenant. And yet God was not willing that his people should just die like those animals. God was not okay with his people continuing to not see him and not feast with him and not enjoy relationship with him. And therefore God in his mercy said something like this, Israel, despite the fact that you cannot keep the covenant, I want you to look at that dead animal, the dead animal of the covenant, because that dead animal tells you that for breaking the covenant, you deserve to die. But it's as if God says, and yet in my mercy, I will allow the animal to die in your place. It's as if God says, I will make sure that your guilt can be placed upon the animal so that the animal's death counts for the death that you deserve. And that's why sacrifice in the Old Testament becomes all about mercy. And that leads us to Jesus. Did you know that Jesus quotes verse eight? Look at verse eight. He quotes verse eight right before he dies. This is why you have to understand Exodus 24 if you're going to understand the rest of the Bible and especially Jesus. Verse eight, Moses says, behold, Israel, the blood of the covenant. And then he splatters them with the blood. Well, just before Jesus died, he took a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he showed it to his disciples. And he said, take and drink of this, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. And then he got up and he went out to the cross and he became God's sacrifice for sin. And so when you look at the cross of Christ, on the one hand, it's a frightening warning because his suffering shows us what it is that our sin deserves. His death is the death that we deserve and from which Christ saves us. And that's when Jesus's death becomes a sign a signpost, an epicenter of mercy, because God is willing to count Jesus's death as the death that we deserve, so that by faith in Christ, we can be set free from our guilt and our sin and our shame and our failure. And therefore, I ask you again the uncomfortable, frightening question, are you a covenant breaker? Have you lived as if God is not part of the equation? Have you acted to be a Christian and yet in your heart run from God? Have you used religion as a shield to distance yourself from God? Have you uh, 
uh, uh, entertained all your doubts and cherished your doubts as ways to keep yourself from God and keep God at arm's distance. If any of that is true, or if you have found that your faith, though you have tried to have faith and yet it always fails, if any of that is true, then look at the cross of Christ and take heart because Jesus is the lamb whose blood was splattered upon God's eternal altar. And Jesus waits to splatter you and sprinkle you with his same blood because when he does then his sacrifice secures your eternal covenant with god and here's the breathtaking reality and here's the way the cross becomes the doorway to you and i fulfilling the purpose that god has for us because when you bring your sin to jesus christ's cross and when you bring your weak faith to jesus christ's cross in that moment, you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And in that moment, with blood on you, Jesus invites you into his, into his table to dine with him and his father. It's a strange thing, but the moment you trust in Jesus, in that moment, your heart is getting the first glimpse of God. You are beginning to see God. What do you mean? I don't mean that you're going to see God with your eyes. That comes later. But when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are seeing the face of God in Christ. And can you see what that means? It means, I hope you can see the kindness of God. It, it means that when we're empty in ourselves, when we're guilty and deserving of death, when we have nothing to offer but our failure, that's when Christ's cross and his sacrifice washes us, unites us to God in an, un, an unbreakable bond. And there in union and intimacy with God, we begin to fulfill the purpose of our lives. You can never fulfill God's purpose for your life so long as you think you can do it on your own. You will never fulfill the, God's purpose for your life so long as you think you're independent. You will never fulfill God's purpose for your life so long as you think there's a shred of anything trustworthy within yourself, but only when you see that your only confidence can be in Christ. When the sacrifice was made, and only after that, the elders of Israel could go and see God and eat with him. And verse 11 says, remarkably, and God didn't lay his hand upon them. Well, when you entrust yourself to Jesus, you enter God's presence, you see the face of God in Jesus Christ, and the only hand that is laid upon you is the right hand of God's fatherly blessing. And I hope you can see the beauty of the covenant. And in one way, the most important application is simply to rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel, in a God whose purpose for you is bigger than your capacity to desire it. You say, I'm not even sure I desire intimacy with God. Well, in God's mercy, his purpose for you is bigger than what you can desire. And rejoice in God's word who summons you to know him. And he summons you now. He is calling you. He is calling you by name. And rejoice by trusting him fully and surrendering to him fully. And rejoice in the sacrifice that says to you, your sin need not kill you. Your sin need not separate you. Jesus died in your place and he holds his people by his power and not by our own. He is the good shepherd. So trust his mercy above all. And then rejoice by being satisfied now a little and through eternity limitlessly by feasting in God's presence and seeing him in the face of Jesus Christ. The purpose of your life is bigger than you imagine and that you can desire.
The aim of your salvation is bigger than you can desire or imagine. The purpose of our church and of your life is to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. So look at him and grant, ask God that your whole life would be calibrated to this grand purpose, to see God, to know him, to feast with him forever. Ask that all of the obstacles, the disappointments, the pain of your life and its joys would all be orchestrated by God to contribute to seeing him now and fully in the end. And that will be the joy that sustains us through this life and throughout countless ages to come. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.